HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Fulton Stall Market, reopening their outdoor market in the Seaport District in May 2021. Learn more at fultonstallmarket.org. This week on Meet and 3, we're jumping into a world filled with fizz, iridescence, and deliciousness. We're talking about bubbles. It came from the air gas truck. Yeah, no, I never thought about it before that. And I think it's emerged as a bulbous tea shops, a site of Asian-American youth uh, identity building. We're called the invisible industry because these products you don't really see, but they're around us in every way, um, every day. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And if I say the word Roma, do you know who I'm talking about? Roma, Romani, Gypsies, Gitanos, a lot of different names to describe an ethnic group that probably migrated to northern to Europe from northern India, but in Eastern Europe, the Roma are the largest ethnic minority. Uh, there was a movie recently called Roma, and that was in that was a Mexican Roma. And throughout history, of course, we we have an idea of who these people are. A probably a stereotype, but we think of you know flowing, colorful dresses and dancing, music, uh, maybe some fortune telling. And all that is indeed part of what went on and what there was, but there's it's so much more. And historically, in in many of the European areas that the Roma migrated into, um, the back about I don't know in the 1400s up until maybe the 1800s, the Roma were were slaves. Many of them were taken as slaves, and we'll learn more about that. Um, they been in Europe for over a thousand years. And today we're going to be talking about those who live in Spain called the Gitano. And there are an estimated over like 750,000 of these Roma or Gitanos living in Spain today. And my speaker today, you know, is, has studied these people. He went and lived with them. 
my question when I read about them, and I guess it was his question as well, was, is there a cuisine? What was the food culture of those who settled in certain areas and specifically in Rome? Well, Valerio Ferris learned about the cuisine of the Spanish Roma and the importance of preserving the recipes and this culture by going there and cooking with them. Ferris is a culinary historian of New York Scholars Grant recipient. Uh, I think it was the year before, yeah, last, the year before last. And Valerio, you're there, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you no, received you're, you're a grant. Right. Yep. right. We received a grant from the culinary historians. I should know that well since I'm part of that. <laughs> and you spent time with the Roma activists and chefs in and around specifically the Barcelona area, focused on the Roma communities in Catalonia. And you studied the process also of collecting and archiving recipes and recorded Roma culinary history as a collaborative process, which I find really interesting. Now, Valerio is a food writer and a researcher and a cook, and you studied media at NYU and worked for a cheesemonger for a while before you pivoted (laughs) into food media. And I first heard of you when you were writing for Food 52 as a staff writer. Um, Since then, you lived in Barcelona, giving tours of the city, and and we'll get into that. I'm assuming that's kind of how you got into this culture, this this group of people. But now you've since moved out of Barcelona and live in Berlin, where you work as a creative editor for the cooking startup Kitchen Stories. Fascinating. Um, How did you come about... Uh, wanting to learn about or studying the uh, the Spanish Roma. And tell us, yeah. we'll, we'll get into having you tell us more about them, but I want to know how you started it first. Of course. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's welcome. a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, I mean, I guess my my arrival kind of at this, this topic was many, many, many years in the making. Um, I grew up in the U.S., but I have a father who's from Italy. And so I spent all my summers kind of going to the going to Europe uh, and visiting my family there. And this word or Roma or um, in in Italian, they're called Zingari, was like Mm -hmm. a community of people that had never really entered my radar living in the U.S. Um, And I remember kind of just like hearing them discussed in passing and whatever was always very confused because I didn't really feel like especially when you're a child and you're learning both languages like I'm constantly doing translations back and forth. And this was this one word that would kind of get tossed around and I would never really be able to kind of think of a, a counterpart or a, a perfect translation for for where I was from. Um, and though Roma do live in, in North America, they the kind of presence was, was a little bit different. And fast forward uh, a few years, or I guess many, uh, and I was studying at NYU in Prague, actually, where they have a campus. And there was a class on the history of, of the Roma. Um, and immediately... I, I jumped into it, was super excited. Uh, it turned out to be kind of a smaller class because, again, a lot of North American uh, students haven't quite heard of of, of this community of people. Um, but I was like, oh, my gosh, this is finally my moment to kind of understand what's going on here um, and, and get a little bit more of historical context. Right. Um, so that was kind of my initial introduction. And it was very an anthropological, anthropological approach. Uh, it was super historical looking at the way that Roma people have been talked about in academia um, and understanding kind of all the different ways that people have studied this community um, and also treated them uh, throughout kind of 
history, but specifically the last two centuries, the 1800s and the 1900s. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you took this course and you learned so much about these people. Uh, Why don't you fill me in a little bit? Um, For instance, who are they and, um, you know, where did they come from? What are some of the more accepted origin theories of who these people are? Yeah, of course. Um, So historically, uh, the Romani, which we'll kind of get into the the naming of it all uh, a bit later, but for the sake of just kind of ease of of flow of conversation, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and use Roma or or Romani people. But they're historically a nomadic group of people uh, living mostly across Europe. Uh, but of course, there are pockets uh, across North and South America as well, just as a, as a result of, of migration. Um, specifically, what makes them unique is that historically, they've never really identified uh, with having kind of like a home territory. Um, and they claim no tradition of an ancient or distant homeland. And is there, there isn't really any kind of allegiance to a political project of establishing like a sovereign nationhood, um, which is why I think makes kind of this study super, super interesting, especially when you're talking about Europe, because you're seeing kind of a bunch of countries that are all intensely defining themselves uh, around this concept of nationhood. And so especially as those nationalism projects were picking up steam, uh, that's kind of when you started to see this tension really take place uh, in Europe, because you have on one hand countries that are gathering around the, a flag, a shared language, um, this kind of vague concept of of unity, mm-hmm. uh, bristling really intensely with people who are completely rejecting that. All right. But they had to come. I mean, that. all right. So the theory is they migrated from maybe northern India. I yeah. mean, they've been and they've been around for for cent, for uh, over a thousand years. Now, I know that they first appeared in Spain around 1425. So, I mean, but so what are some of the theories about where they where of they course. perhaps came from? Yeah, so the most of the ser- the theories around where they uh, originated from have to do um, or kind of were arrived at through the avenue of linguistics. Um, so when you look at Romani, which is the language um, most commonly spoken in Roma communities, although that tends to vary from country to country, there's kind of a, a vague... Um, like commonality between all of them. So mm-hmm. in Romani, actually, the earliest or the most easy comparisons are to modern Indo-European languages of Northern India. Um, so that was kind of what people were able to use to say, okay, here's kind of some type of origin theory. Um, it's kind of in, in academia, it's called the Indian origin theory to explain that Roma people supposedly left India in repeated migrations um, and then moved into Persia by the 11th century, moved into southern, southeastern Europe by the 14th, and then arrived in Western Europe by the 15th. Mm-hmm. Um, other people can test that and say that kind of to do this work of explaining origin and especially explaining origin as coming from outside of Europe increases the sense of otherness that uh, Roma communities already feel. Um, and so there's kind of these two camps in, in a lot of, or in the Roma scholarship that I studied, um, one saying Indian origin theory, we can explain it through language, we can look at migratory patterns, and this is what kind of brought them here to Europe. And then there's other people saying focusing too much on origin is really just doing more othering work. Um, so let's even not even try to explain that, and let's more so just work on the current kind of tension that we have very, yeah. very apparent I mean, in cur- our society. Yeah, curiosity, curiosity gets the better of me, you know, wanting exactly. to explain it. But uh, it's fascinating, I mean, just a, a fascinating history. Um, and, uh, oh, you had mentioned, um, they're, I mean, it makes them out, they are such outsiders or, or the otherness, which 
only adds to what they encountered over the centuries, which was totally. a lot of uh, historical subjugation and totally and uh, derogatory uh, names. Gypsy being one, it, that's that's considered a, a pejorative name, right? Yeah. So you see across across all of Europe and every country uh, different words for what we in English would use as the word gypsy. Um, so you have Zagoyner in German, uh, Zingari in Italian, Gitanos in, in Spain. And this word Roma was kind of, uh, was agreed on by a lot of people within the community, but, um, and it was agreed on as kind of a source of some type of unity to create this idea of like, pan-nationalism isn't the right word because it's, it's not necessarily an, an, a nationhood, but to create this like idea of unity across different communities in different, in different countries in Europe. The flip side to that is a lot of people saying, that actually doesn't necessarily apply to me. Um, naming is always very tricky, right? And so yeah. with this, we see this whole thing of an individual, it seems like a good idea to impose this, this kind of concept of Roma. And I think a lot of people would, would agree with that. And when I was in the Czech Republic, actually, there was a lot of people identifying as Czech Roma. Um, but when I was in Spain, I don't think I ever heard someone from the community ever call themselves Roma. Um, they were always using the Spanish word for gypsy gitano. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea of it would be nice and clean and easy to kind of have this one word that go, that crosses borders, uh, but again, this is not like a nice, clean, and easy uh, situation. So, right. it's there's so it's it's some people bristle actually, kind of against the word Roma because it feels like this um, almost like weighted blanket that's supposed to kind of get rid of all the like bristles that exist. But actually, a lot of people do kind of hold on to these original this original nomenclature that, though in some cases, is is used in a derogatory way is actually what they more identify as. Hmm. Well, in, in, um, in those travels and settling, I mean, they never really settled in one place and it wasn't because they were necessarily nomadic, right. But they got kicked out. I mean, they were told to move on initially, right. It was a combination of both. They like historically did lead a little bit more of a nomadic lifestyle. Um, and so there is uh, actually, if you look at the Roma flag, for example, there's actually a, a wheel with spokes in the center of the flag. Uh, so there was this kind of like lifestyle via caravan um, and then establishing temporary um, settlements. So this was a lot of this was by choice, but a lot of this was also because of like forced resettlement at the hands of local enforcement. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of a little bit of a mix of both. Um, and it was actually kind of this exact borderlessness and transitory nature that was kind of unsettling a lot of European populations and governments. And sure. it really helped to establish a, a, a stark difference between us and them or you and them. Right. Well, um, tell me a little bit about the, the history of, of many of the groups who migrated to Europe. Yeah. So um, I think that if we're going to have to talk about a little bit of the history of the, the Roma groups that migrated to Europe, it's going to be one. Um, of a, with a long history of, of subjugation. Um, so uh, they became kind of scapegoats where it, depending on where they live for a variety of societal ills um, and their relationships with host countries were marked by a lot of contradictions. Um, oftentimes, um, and we see this happen kind of with Native Americans in the United States um, in a similar way, but there was a lot of deg- um, kind of mov- movements or motions to assimilate them into local culture. So rid them of their of their language, um, enroll them in local schools, and this kind of process from from a younger generation up of of destroying and, and erasing their culture. Hmm. Um, some other examples, um, just through, throughout history, in 1530, 
England issues, issues the Egyptians Act, which banned Romani from entering the country and required those living within it to leave within the course of 16 days. Um, under, in 1685 in Portugal, um, they deported Romani to Brazil. And then, of course, um, the largest kind of, where it kind of is the tipping point uh, was during the Holocaust, when an estimated 400,000 Roma uh, were killed across Europe. Yeah, I think that's something that no one is aware of, that they yeah. that there was this planned extermination of totally. them. I mean, besides the Jews, they were the largest group of people targeted by the Holocaust. Right, right, yeah. And Amazing. I think that's actually, it's interesting because there is a lot to be said also about the comparison between Jews in Europe and, and Roma in Europe. There was There was this kind of borderlessness, community orientation to it, shared language, yes, Yiddish, but also shared religion. And and then they both kind of came, and they were the same way the Jews were often blamed for certain societal ills or for plagues. Um, there was a lot of kind of, compare. there was a lot of comparisons to be made between the way that they existed in Europe, uh, both these two communities. Hmm. Uh, but the, I mean, the slave labor was something that I, that, um, that I was it caught my eye and interested me because of the when you see uh, representations of them, let's say in in books or in in film, it's always these same uh, uh, labor skills that that were mm-hmm. which were very much you know slave labor skills. Yeah, yeah. There was so there was some history of of, of Roma slavery in the Balkans. Um, and then I think also you're pointing at something super important with the representations in the media. I mean, you see, you're either seeing this type of hard work or you're seeing fortune tellers, palm readers, swindlers, this kind of like exotic covered, like swathed in different fabrics, um, like tricky kind of stereotype that was, was super, super active and kind of continues to be. Um, I mm-hmm. mean, even so much as yeah. in um, my childhood, I had Esmeralda in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, mm-hmm. who was like persecuted in France for, for being um, a gypsy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and then um, I, I know I, some things that I read said some of those skills, as they tried to um, assimilate them into their the communities, that some of those skills would be outlawed and not letting them do that. Horse training was a big one. Yeah, right, as, yeah. As well. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, music. And yeah, music is actually a really interesting point as well, because um, especially the way that they're understood uh, through most of like uh, outside Roma communities uh, is is through music. So historically, they've had a huge contribution uh, to to global music scene um, right. in, in Spain. A lot of uh, Gitanos are, are credited with with creating flamenco um, people in like ethnomusicologists are always focusing on, on Gitano communities um, or Roma communities in general across, across Europe because of their huge, huge, huge contributions to the music scene. Right. And uh, I mean, just make me think of so many, so many different things that I, that I see and read about them and which, you know, are often uh, not true and, and not right. But yet that, you know, being the music, even though it's portrayed as being, you know, the, you know, the, the dancing and the, which we, of course there was, you know, the dancing mm-hmm. and yeah, celebrating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were a very tight knit, everywhere they went, obviously they had one another. So they were a very tight knit. Of course, community, right? of course. Yeah. 
So I would imagine there would be a lot of that. What mm -hmm. about food? Yeah, what about food? Huh? I mean, That's they were never my... settled in one place long enough to, you know, to really develop a cuisine, right, of that totally. area. Yeah, that's. I mean, that was my big question, and and so when I was studying in in the Czech Republic at my university in Prague, I I'm in general very food minded. My my parents owned restaurants growing up. Uh, my dad was a chef, and when it got time to get to my final project, we were had to propose some type of research paper, and I remember asking my professor like, what like can you point me in the direction of any information about like Roma food? Is I would love to kind of have some kind of more independent research based on this. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he was like, that's actually something that like really is, is not discussed. Um, food studies in general is kind of, has only really emerged in the past few years as this like super robust academic discipline. Mm -hmm. And it hadn't kind of crept to the edges and, and reached and, and, co and kind of Venn diagrammed with, with Roma studies. And he was like, you're kind of going to have to do, do that on their, on your own. Um, <laughs> so there wasn't really a lot of, of work or writing out there that existed, especially um, in a Czech context, uh, talking about about Roma food, and yeah, so that's a, it was a super interesting thing that I wanted to kind of learn about because, like you just brought up with the music, um, it's this cultural output that helps define a community, um, especially when they're lacking all the like traditional things that we think of as community defining, whether that be. Um, borders or a shared flag or um a national anthem it was all these kind of i was thinking a lot of benedict anderson and imagine communities all these things that we do or actions or words that we speak that make us us and i wanted to see maybe how food could kind of be one of those things right and right. and also with with this history of poverty subjugation mobility uh, spread, spreaded outness, I guess, across across the continent of Europe. How was that also affecting the their shared food culture? Right. So, what made you choose Spain? Yeah. So, when I was in Czech Republic, I I did that project and I met with a local Roma activist uh, based out of Brno, which is uh, one of the largest cities in the Czech Republic, and he first of all was extremely moved and extremely excited that I was even kind of asking the questions that I was mm -hmm. and met up with him, went to his house uh, and he showed me this like whole YouTube archive that he had made of him just cooking in his kitchen and feeding his family. And he would kind of show the food, just talk through the recipes. And I thought, oh my gosh, wow, this is actually exactly what I'm looking for. This is so beautiful. This this, this person is understanding that if this goes away, I too in some way go away, um, mm -hmm. or we do too in some way go away. And I just like, we, we really, really connected and I, and I wrote this paper and I just kept thinking about it, thinking about it, but I had to end up going back to school. It wasn't until a few years later that I was writing this time about food, this time also a full time. <laughs> um, and I thought, okay, now I actually have like a huge vocabulary to talk about food. Um, what would what would happen if I revisited that project, uh, reached out with that that activist that I had met while I was in the Czech Republic, and started to develop kind of this this line of thinking in a, in a bigger way? Um, I talked to the the man in Czech Republic, but I did realize that ultimately, if I wanted to be um, as successful or get as deep as I wanted to, 
um, I was going to need a local language. Um, and I speak Spanish. So I ended up, though kind of my earliest connections were in the Czech Republic, I ended up pivoting and focusing through a lot of connections that I made with them and, and them kind of connecting me with communities there. And I moved, I decided to relocate and make it happen in Spain. I just thought that um, on a personal level, I would feel much more connected. I could get the type of work done that, that I wanted to be able to. Yeah. And delve a little deeper into delve, delve yeah. a little deeper. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that was kind of what ended up shifting the focus from, from one country to another. Well, and, and what I would imagine, and you tell me in you know, your studies that looking at the food of this community, there's not just one food of that entire Roma population because they're each different in each country that they migrated to just as any ethnic community would of be course. any, any of uh, course. you know, group. Of so course. you're looking at influences of what's available, right? And what they're exactly. cooking of what's available. So a lot and of Spanish, you know, a lot of Spanish influences in whatever other foods might be part of their background. Totally. And it was something I realized super early on when I was doing my research. At first, I was trying to do this kind of large pan-European study. And I realized, first of all, not only is that not feasible, I mean, it is feasible, but in a, in a look, having a long kind of time to, to do that. But what I did realize and what a lot of people were telling me early on is you can't expect the food to be the same in, in Eastern Europe as it is in Western Europe and the North and the South. It's going to change right. with the place in the same way that Roma, Romani, the language, um, takes on from the place that they are, so too does the food. And so right. then that also was this whole line of thinking that actually kind of became one of my main research questions was thinking, okay, one, what makes Roma food Roma, but then also how is it interacting uh, with with the local cuisines where it's based? Um, So it almost made it even more interesting to kind of be able to think about that because it's not like everything I've been saying, it's not this pan-European identity. It's this identity that exists, but also like convenes with with the local identity where it's based. Well, now you you said... um you spoke Spanish, that's all great, but they spoke a little, they spoke a Romani and a, and a yeah, Spanish. Yeah, so most and... of, most of the people where I was in, so for example, in the Czech Republic, they were speaking Czech and then they were speaking Romani uh, in their community. Most of the Gitanos that I, that I was meeting with in Spain were only speaking Spanish and Catalan, which is the, okay. the language of, of Catalonia and Barcelona. So it, right. that was also interesting because I felt like there was a lot more there was a little bit more, I guess, of a historical connection in Czech Republic. And then in Spain, they they were just speaking the local language mm-hmm. or languages. Hmm. Um, mm. So, so, all right. So tell me about, so tell me about the food. Yeah, that of you, course. That you discovered in, in, uh, in Catalonia. Yeah, of course. So I would not have been able to have accomplished uh, or even have kind of delved as deep uh with not for the help of the Alicia Foundation, uh, which is a food gastronomy research center and like center of innovation based out of Catalonia. It's about three hours north of, of Barcelona, probably an hour by car, but three hours by train. And what they do is they have, they're kind of a multi-pronged organization. They focus a lot on nutrition, but they do have uh, one arm that is devoted to uh, kind of food history um, and they had actually done or put together a book uh, on Catalan Gitana cuisine, uh, hmm. which was was super perfect, super interesting for me. I went kind of got to go straight to the belly of the beast. 
met with them and had a really nice conversation with them. They had spent a few years traveling through Catalonia, archiving recipes, collecting stuff. Um, neither of the people who put together the project were Hitano, uh, but they had kind of driven from town to town, met with community organizers, cooked with people there, and um, put together a cookbook of all the research uh, that they were able to conduct to, while they were putting together their project, which was really, really helpful for me um, because this kind of the scope of work that they had done um, and the breadth of recipes that they were able to show me were super, super useful. And then they were kind of were connecting me through, through their network as well. Right. Um, were there many so other, I, are there, are there many other um, documented, written, um, codified recipes from the Romani? Like, I mean, this Alicia project is, is, a, is phenomenal, you know. It's phenomenal. It's also a super unique uh, example. There isn't a lot of stuff that exists like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when they were doing the research, they found that the Hitano people that they interacted with were extremely grateful and super surprised. And it was because it's also an extremely oral culture, they they were the ones kind of writing these recipes down for the first time um, and doing stuff like watching people pour, watching them pour how much they go in and kind of like measuring the negative space, measuring the rests, you know? Right. Um, so they were really kind of doing the recipe building from the, from the ground up. Um, and... Yeah, it was a super exciting project for them. And yeah, like you said, there's not a lot of, of examples like this, so much so that though they only did it in, in Catalonia, which is a province of Spain, they hope someday, we're given the funding, to take the project uh, countrywide um, and drive across the country visiting different Hitano communities across yeah. Spain um, and yeah. doing this. So yeah, it's important to say that the research I was doing or the people I met with are Hitano communities only within a Catalan context. So that's um, a region of Spain um, but it's kind of being like, I guess, because I'm based in Texas, being com- being coming to the U.S. and saying that you're doing research in the U.S., but ex- ex- exclusively in Texas, uh, right, which, as, right. as we know, is very different than the rest <laughs> <Right>. of the U.S. <laughs> well, you know, you've got to start somewhere. I mean, it's of like course, any project. You've got to start small and then grow from there. And I think that, you know, that's the best way to do it. I want to hear specifically about some the, you know, some of the recipes, some of the types of food and the cooking project. Uh, right after we take a, a quick break. So we're going we're gonna to go for a quick break, but stay tuned. We're going to be right back. This episode is brought to you by Fulton Stall Market, reopening their outdoor market in the Seaport District in May 2021. Fulton Stall Market is a nonprofit, indoor, public farmer's market. It offers locally grown and produced healthy and affordable, fresh food to the Seaport and Lower Manhattan community. Fulton Stall Market is a direct sales outlet for over 100 New York region farmers and small batch independent food producers. They have been operating as a public market to serve the Seaport community since 2015. While you shop at Fulton Stall Market, you can pick up a few guides from Escape Maker's informational kiosk. Escape Maker connects urbanites with local farm, winery, craft beverage, and culinary getaways within a day's drive or train ride of New York City. Learn about day trips from New York, where you can explore the best agritourism the region has to offer. Learn more at fultonstallmarket.org and escapemaker.com. Okay, we're back and we're talking about the food of the Gitano or the gypsies of Spain. And Valerio, you, I want to know like what 
what did you find out about the food? What what types of food? What were they eating? What you know, what was going on? What were they cooking? All right, yeah. So I was able to kind of put together everything I found um, and break it into like a few different bullets, let's call them. Um, so I guess to, the easiest way always entering food when you're talking about food or flavor is to just look at ingredients. Um, and there was a few different ingredients that, um, five kind of categories in general that, um, are kind of the mainstays or the flavor breakdowns of, of what the Catalan Gitano cuisine was like. So first and foremost, um, it would be, I would be remiss. It's actually crazy that it took me this long to even bring up this word, but is fennel. Um, mm. there's literally a phrase in, in Hitano communities that, uh, they say what a Hitano dish when they eat the flavor of it or when they taste it because it has such intense flavor of fennel. Um, mm. it grows wild throughout the region. And so it's therefore easily, super easily foraged. Um, and it's a lot of dishes, uh, and a lot of the recipes that I collected, uh, are going to be kind of trademarked by this, uh, anise fennel flavor, which was great news for me because it happens to be one of my favorites. <laughs> um, the second ingredient that we're going to see a lot of uh, is chicken or hens. Um, these, of course, uh, pack a lot of punch, super reliable flavor uh, as far as growing and raising chicken, pretty relative, easily cup, upkeep, upkeep. And then they can also be extremely versatile. So there's a lot of different ways uh, you can like repurpose a chicken uh, and then not only are you using the meat, but you have the bones, uh, to make stock. So like one chicken can actually kind of take you a very long way, uh, which is what makes it popular in their cuisine. Um, next would be pork. I would say is kind of the third most, uh, important ingredient. Again, super easy, uh, to, to keep rich in flavor, cheap. Um, the bones are also useful for stocks. Um, and then because this is Spain, uh, you use you have the pork meat, but then you have all the kind of related products. Uh, in Spain, they're called embutido, embutidos. Uh, so this is like blood sausage and chorizo, mm -hmm. um, which again are extremely cheap to make using kind of different parts of the animal and then spicing them with most often paprika. All right. So fish is one category that you're not going to see a lot of usage in their cuisine. Um, but where I was in Catalonia is, is a a water region or touches the ocean. So there you get a lot of something called bacalao, which is a salted codfish uh, that's preserved in salt and therefore like almost non-perishable. So you're able to keep fish year round outside of the fridge uh, because it's pretty much been completely, had the moisture completely sucked out of it. Uh, in order to prepare it and cook it, you have to soak it in water for 24 hours, mm -hmm. uh, changing out the water every few hours. So therefore all the salt comes out the f it gets kind of moisturized again uh, and you're able to cook it. So there is that, that the bacalao is the only time you're really going to see fish come into play. And then the last uh, ingredient that there's a lot of uh, examples of these appearing in recipes are legumes. Um, and you're going to, like I said with earlier ones, uh, super nutritious, they're cheap, very easy to transport, uh, keep you full for a long time and extremely versatile. So you can, match legumes with rice, pasta, potatoes. A lot of the Hitano cuisine uh, is very stew-based. Um, so you're going to see, they're called like potajes in Spanish. So lots of like big pots to serve large quantities of people uh, filled with 
fennel and beans and bits of pork and chicken, uh, maybe even bacon, these kind of huge um, group dinners. Um, I would say something, something to feed a lot of people. Right? Something to feed a lot of people. Uh, my mom always says, like, food that sticks to your bones, right? right. So this, like, very rich, comforting, uh, grounding food. Hmm. Um, so they, they would use their, um, their starches of preference or or what was also in the cuisine already, a lot of rice and potatoes. Lots of rice. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah, just to kind of reiterate again, it's that eating style that you're going to see is super important. Even the, the cookbook that I was referencing, the one written by the Alicia foundation was divided not into like appetizers, mains, blah, 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 but was actually divided into like foods you eat with a spoon, foods you eat with a fork, and foods you eat with a knife. Uh, because foods you eat with a spoon are going to be all these like very rich uh, soups and stews. Foods you eat with a fork are these, are like rice dishes, which are very popular in Spain as well. And rice mm-hmm. can mean anything from like a paella to almost more of a soupy rice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then foods you eat with a knife are like meats and kind of grilled, grilled mm-hmm. foods. Uh, but this one, the main kind of preference or style of eating is always going to be from a big pot. And they say, um, cucharra y paso atrás, which means take a spoon and pass it on. So oftentimes you're having the big pot, you take a, you scoop yourself a bowl and you pass the pot on and people mm. kind of, it moves down from there. Right. Uh, but kind of like a lot of things we've been saying, it's, it's this sense again of, of community and support and sharing and, and kind of con- convivial lifestyle. Right. You know, I can, I mean, I've seen a picture of you cooking with um, some of the women. And, oh, and that's one thing I wanted to ask. Who does most of the cooking? Uh, it's a it's a female, um, it's mostly a, a culture, female. Female culture. Yeah, culture. I talked to one woman whose name is Paquita Domingo, who's a huge cook. And she was even telling, yeah, she says it's always passed down to the oldest woman. And that she grew up not liking to cook and the day her mom died she stepped into the kitchen and now she's kind of she was one of the biggest contributors to the cookbook she says she's always cooking for her family um in fact there are even a few factors that um most define the gitano cuisine and women is always going to be one of them uh it's Hmm. a huge huge thing to consider when thinking about just passing of the recipes codification of the recipes and making of them in general yeah yeah well, the picture I saw of you, I think it was a picture that you had uh, given uh, another group. It was you standing in the kitchen with two or three women, older women, yeah. you know, all cooking together. You know, in a, in a I'd say like a, a restaurant kitchen, but a modern kitchen, a lot of, you know, the counters, the stoves. And yet these dishes that you described to me, some of the big stews, I could also envision them being cooked in a big, you know, iron kettle over an open fire. Totally, totally, yeah. They have a very kind of rustic feel to them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one recipe that I like to reference sometimes, and it's um, it's so interesting. It's basically they take a just flour, add it to a pot, and 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 knead it with water, and then actually cook a stew around that. So once you have the ball of of dough in the bottom of the pot, they start adding broth and vegetables on top of it. Um, and it turns into this like stew with almost like a ball of bread at the, at the middle of it. And yeah, it's this very kind of like cauldron over fire energy <laughs> that, that you can imagine. And then you get everyone around and, and you get to, to, to taste it and, and share it with a huge group of people. 
like a giant dumpling in the bottom. Of the yeah, pot, kind right? of right. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, some of that flour would would I'm sure dissolve off and help thicken exactly. the soup. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. I, I like that idea. That's that's very interesting. Yeah, like you mentioned, besides women, there's just another really interesting point that. Uh, I was. I learned about. There's a few factors that kind of define define the cuisine in general. So we said women, which you were super quick to point out, and I'm very correct as well to point out. Um, there's a few other things that kind of influence it as well. Or there's we're gonna have to always account for migration. Um, so because of the way that Roma communities travel throughout Europe, um, though most of them are are settled at this point, or pretty much all of them are settled because of that history of of constant movement. You are gonna see a little bit of um, kind of a rich like mixture of traditions and, and and customs. Another thing that's really important to take into account is generational interaction, um, which kind of links back to the, the the idea of women like we were discussing earlier. So it, whether it's through marriage or it's family intermingling, it's this passing of recipes through women of the family. Um, and that's pretty much how a lot of this culinary know-how is kept alive, mm-hmm. um, which isn't unlike a lot of other a lot right. of other communities. Exactly, from mother to daughter, you know. Exactly, mm-hmm. and it's which is why I think that there's kind of this interesting tension that exists with projects like what I want to do or what I do, and and this book, this cookbook with the Alicia Foundation, because it's in one sense it's really good because you are kind of taking all these recipes, giving them a place to live, writing them down for the first time, but it does in some ways feel like cheating that kind of secret silent bond that exists between between generations and it's it feels like stepping in in between but it is also it's an act of preservation so you in one sense it is also super important yeah no i think it's i think it's very important work because how you know how do we know about any culture um you know 500 years ago if we're lucky we look at some documents that show evidence of what they were eating, what they were cooking. Exactly. That tells us so much about where they lived, you know, their, uh, they farmed. I mean, it's, I think it's a very important thing to, to uh, do this archiving and, and the process of collecting, talking to the people, you know, getting totally. the background and the history from them. Yes, we still have in many cultures, you know, the oral tradition of passing down uh, recipes and, often a lot gets lost because maybe, you know, in this modern society, maybe it skips a generation, you know? Right. Somebody, as you said, the woman wasn't really interested in the kitchen, but you know, right. she had to step into it. What if, in fact, she got a job as a, you know, a, a, you know, a data inputter or something and exactly. she, she had no time to cook. So I, I think the project is of, of studying this is whether, I don't think you're cheating at all. I think that you can be the outsider looking in. One can be an outsider looking in but yet put it down and, and document it. Totally, totally. And I think that there's a lot of anxiety, especially of, about younger generations and just not being as interested in this or mm-hmm. being too busy or having other things to do. And um, there is kind of this, it does feel like, I don't know if it's because of the internet or, or something, but it does feel a little bit of a drop-off point. Um, yeah. And so... It's it's this this kind of interesting tension, but this the the woman that that we that I was talking about earlier, Paquita, has a quote that I that I wrote down that kind of sums all this up. And she says, when I was talking to her, she she told I asked her about um, whether she thought recipes were important and and food were important to understanding her and her identity. And she said, um, and I quote, "My culture is very based on food. It's super important. If we don't conserve it, I would lose my identity. I believe in values and principles." These are values we need, 
otherwise we would lose our identity. It's our way of understanding the world, it's our love, it's our dedication to our elders. If we promote our culture, we become more visible. So I think especially when we're talking about communities like these, like Kitanos, who on one hand have experienced a history of, of oppression, and then on the other hand are at, in, like fearful of, of losing their traditions to modernity, it's very, you very much get people like her who are, who are kind of filled with this anxiety and, and nervous about, wait, if this goes away, first of all, so does my history, but also mm-hmm. this is something that I can actually really use to help people who are not in my community gain access to it or understand it. Absolutely, um, yeah. Because if you sit down and you like the way it tastes, you're probably going to also like me, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, it's, it's off, a lot of observations were made during the period of COVID and that a lot people were turning back to cooking food right. and, and making their own breads and making, you know, going back to really base um, projects and learning a lot about their families, about their background and, and uh, what they the kind of food they like to eat, what makes them, you know, what gives them an identity. And I, I just love that quote because it just, it, it speaks so loudly to, you know, to, to about so many people. But tell me about, well, first of all, I want, there's a question I went, I had earlier when you were talking about it. And that is some of these wonderful stews that you described. Um, and I'm sure they they vary with all the different ingredients. Um, what about other vegetables? You have fennel, you, you talked about. Um, mm-hmm. What about green, other greens and vegetables? Anything in particular, like foraging? Does that is that played large or? Yeah, so I wouldn't say vegetables are going to be taking the lead anywhere soon. Okay. We can see like lots of good Spanish cooking. Uh, they, they use a sofrito as the base of a lot of their their dishes. So that's going to be celery or sorry, in Spain it's onion, pepper, uh, and garlic, mm-hmm. red pepper. Um, so you see some of those. Uh, oftentimes in the stews, stews, you'll get carrots and celery um, and some cabbage as well. Uh, right. But fennel is really going to be the one green that's that's taking the lead. Uh, in general, Hitano food tends to be um, meat-based and oftentimes on the heavier side. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in Spain, um, which this is not what my research went into, but it was just something that I learned along the way. I was, I'm, was more interested in the historical side of things, but... Um, there actually is an obesity problem in the community. Um, and that was kind of why the Alicia Foundation originally started working with Itano communities. And then they realized there was there was this really beautiful um, historical discourse to be oh, had. Um, so they kind of went more with that route. But even then they were saying, when I talked to the Alicia Foundation and I was saying, okay, if if like obesity or or child child like child nutrition was was your focus, why then did you take the time? to to kind of do this entire backlog of recipes and they basically said to me they were like it's futile to try and work with a community um and quote unquote better or help them improve uh certain habits if you don't understand the history and to do it coming out of nowhere makes no sense but if you can have a context for understanding why things are the way they are and also just and then improve, not improving, but but working with that to make something different. It's going to be a lot more successful than just coming in and, and changing things completely. Right. Um, Absolutely. So that that was a really interesting kind of element of of their work with the Hitano communities as well. Right. Um, another question I had for you on this was: Has did you notice, or have you have you noticed, or, or maybe haven't had the opportunity? Is has their food 
migrated at all into mainstream Spanish? Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, no, not really. I think that, um, like, there are other parts of, for example, in Eastern Europe or in the Balkans where the it almost feels like he, he, the Roma com- culture in, in those areas is almost, like, more commodified and you can go to, like, gypsy-style restaurants where they play you certain music and feed you certain dishes. It doesn't feel as like there's as much of a, a back and forth in that way in Spain. Um, and the food is pretty similar. I mean, there's like, there's certain dishes that you could see from Hitaro cooking that you'd be like, oh, for sure, this is this is for sure different. But I wouldn't say that there, had, there was kind of that opposite direction. I mean, Spaniards tend to be quite um, religious about their, their food. Mm. Um, so in general, there's not, a, there's not a lot of influence happening there. Yeah, interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Um, I just I find the whole thing fascinating because of you know the 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 trials and and tribulations they've gone through and and you know finally finding a home. But still, how you know what's the what's the the tension like today uh, for a lot of these groups? Well, you know specifically in Spain, what um, are they feeling more assimilated? Do they want to be? Are they is there this a, a, a bit of a fear of prosecution? Is anything? What's it like? Yeah, I I wouldn't say it's um, super great. Um, the the people that I talked to talked of like lots of different types of institutional violence. Um, the the woman Paquita Domingo told me that she had a really hard time um, like finding a job, and then also like extra levels of screening. Um, she says she encounters lots of different types of prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, the neighborhood that I went, that I had to travel to uh, one day, I went to a Roma community center um, or Hitano community center in Barcelona. Like a lot of the people, when I told them what neighborhood I was going to were like, like kind of reacted in a certain way. So I wouldn't say, it doesn't feel at all like there's like a huge kind of comfortable um, integration in any way. Yeah. Well, and by the yeah. same token, they uh, things that I have read and heard that they're very close too. They're they're very timid about letting somebody in totally, to totally. study them, right? So yeah, when you and- first brought this project to the culinary historians of New York, I, uh, a couple of us looked at one another and said, "Well, how is he going to gain entry into some of these?" <laughs> I got. I've gotten this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that, like. Yes, I think that's a super valid point. And I, a lot of people through, because even when I was talking about this before, even talking to culinary historians of New York, I just remember a lot of people being like, how do you think you're going to do this? And yeah. I do, yeah, it is. I think also, especially when you have a community that has a history of external, like violence towards right. them, it makes right. sense that you would start to close yourself off to, to outsiders. But right. I do think that if, and maybe this is like me in my like, little brain and world that I've created for myself. But like, I do think if it's food that you're talking about, like it's the easiest way to make someone's guards come down as fast as possible. And like in my experience, like working with people or meeting people, if I can just know a few dishes about where they're from or describe to them a a food I had that reminds me of, of where, of where they are. Like, I just noticed that it makes people it just melts people in a way that makes them feel super comfortable. And if you can actually express genuine interest, which is what I did have for this project, 
I think that people will, I don't know, there's just something that it just pushes a button and it, and it just clicks really easily. And as soon as I, I, I mean, at first when I was meeting with different organizations in Barcelona, they were like, you want to what? And then I was <laughs> like, yeah, I just want to meet a few. I would love if you could help me and like meet some people. I would love to cook with them. And they were like, okay, okay, this is like kind of a difficult community for you to do that with. But then kind of once I met the Elise Foundation, they had kind of massaged those connections already. And by the time I was, I was calling and, and meeting with people, they were super excited. And yeah, I mean, once you get someone talking about a recipe or a flavor that means something to them or their child or their favorite thing to cook on Sundays when their whole family comes over, like who isn't in a good mood when they're talking right, about that? Right. And you show interest in them, you know? That's, exactly, that's exactly. Yeah. And it ultimately like was something that was really undergirding my my research and my thinking in general was like, yes, by by paying attention to this or by putting value on on what someone eats, you're, you're therefore calling them valuable um, because it's... I mean, at least to me, it's it's a huge part of who someone is, and and if you show respect and and kind of devotion to something like that, it it transfers onto them. Yes. Well, I hope that. I mean, first of all, you're so fortunate to have um, gotten connected with that Alicia Foundation. And, yeah, incredible. And I I hope that this is something that you will revisit and continue at some point in your travels because. What you have done so far is a, such a tremendous contribution, I think, to you know to cultural history, to to culinary history. I mean, just knowing so much about in a, a group of people more so than anyone else, and especially a group of people that has been very elusive to the outside world. Um, and I just I look forward to hearing more from you sometime in the future, and hope that this can be a larger project. And thank you Thanks. for spending your time with us to 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 share this information that you that you did and put together. And thank you. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't have been possible without the culinary historians of New York. Like, they they. I mean, this was something that was just like a passion project of mine that I've been telling people at dinner parties that I wanted to do. <laughs> and so, with their help, it it super it kind of really opened a lot of doors. And then also with the help of the Alicia Foundation and all the Hitano people, specifically Paquita Domingo, that they introduced me to. Um, I even was, I emailed, because I presented this recently to the culinary historians, and I emailed the pre- presentation to the, my contacts at the Elise Foundation. And I told them, because we had talked about it briefly, they were like, if we ever do this on a, on a Spanish, like across the country, I was like, you have to call me because mm-hmm. I will drop whatever I'm doing and I will get in that car and I will drive with you guys to make like a larger cookbook happen. So I, he, I told him, I was like, here's my number, here's my email. When you want to do this project, let you know who to call. That's the way it happens, Valerio. You just Let's see. Gotta, yeah, you got to keep at it. That's all, <laughs> got to keep at them. Well, thank you so much. And feel free to share, you know, the this podcast with them so they can, you know, hear yes. more of your, of your yes, views. Yes, I will. With it. I will, I will. And as I said before, I hope to hear more from you in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for listening. And this has been, again, another Taste of the Past. And be sure to subscribe to A Taste of the Past so you don't miss any of these wonderful conversations. And if you get a chance to go to the website, I don't know where you come across this podcast, but if you come across the podcast through heritageradionetwork.org, you might take a look at some of the other programming. And while you're there, take a look at the beating heart in the upper right-hand corner and give us a little love. Um, Thank you again for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.